The views expressed in the following program do not necessarily represent those of the staff, management, or owners of WGBB. Live from the WGBB studios in Merrick, New York, this is Sports Talk New York. Good evening and hello again, everybody. Welcome. Welcome to Sports Talk New York on WGBB here in Merrick, Long Island, New York. I am Bill Donahue. I'm taking you through the first hour on this Sunday night, the 10th day of April 2022. Our engineer, Brian Graves, is with us as always right across the way. I am happy to welcome you aboard tonight. Uh, glad you could be with us. We've got a great show lined up ahead for you. First off, we hope to welcome in the great Muggsy Bogues. Uh, we'll talk to him about his new book. It's titled Muggsy, My Life from a Kid in the Projects to the Godfather of Small Ball. And he's got forwards in the book by Steph Curry and Alonzo Mourning. So we're looking forward to talking to Muggsy about that. In the second half, we switch gears. And we're going to switch gears very well, and we're going to be honored. We're bringing one of the greatest guitar players of all time, a rock and roll Hall of Famer uh, from, I believe it's 2020, with the Doobie Brothers. He has a new album out, and he will be in our area doing some gigs. That's the immortal Jeff Skunk Baxter. He's going to stop by. So sit back, relax. Get comfortable. Enjoy Sports Talk New York tonight on WGBB. As always, uh, a great show with you with some great people, some good sports talk, and more. More memories up ahead tonight. As always, before we begin, I invite you to follow us on our Facebook page. It's titled WGBB Sports Talk New York. Out there, you'll find sports information, show information, and so much more. So you can stop by, check that out, give it a look, and then click and give it a like. You can also follow us on LinkedIn. We're out there on that value-added business tool known as LinkedIn. We are on Twitter at WGBB Sports Talk. And I am available on Twitter at B. Donahue. WGBB and all past shows. Don't worry if you miss one because they're all out on the website. Catalog there for you to listen at your leisure. Well, we're having trouble reaching Muggsy Bogues right now, so we're going to go ahead and take a look at some of the scores in Major League Baseball from today. Uh, the phone is ringing, folks. Hopefully that is Mr. Bogues. Uh, the Dodgers and the Rockies final today, Rockies 9, Dodgers 4. The San Francisco Giants beat the Florida Marlins, or the Miami Marlins as they're known now, by a final of 3-2. to two. Good, Brian? All right, we're going to have Muggsy Bogues with us momentarily, our first guest. Very happy to introduce him. He played 14 seasons in the NBA for the Charlotte Hornets, the Bullets, the Raptors, and the Warriors. He really defied the odds in the NBA. A lesson for all you boys and girls out there tonight. Listen up. His new book is titled Muggsy, My Life from a Kid in the Projects 
to the godfather of small ball. It's going to be released this Tuesday, Tuesday, April 12th, from our good friends out in Chicago at Triumph Books. It's great to welcome to the show tonight, Muggsy Bogues. Muggsy, good evening. How you doing, Bill? Thanks for having me, partner. It's great to have you with us, Muggsy. I want to thank right off the bat your lovely daughter, Brittany, for facilitating this and getting this together for us. So when you see her next, Muggsy, give her a big thank you for me. I will certainly do just that. All right. Now, you were born in Baltimore, Maryland. You grew up in the Lafayette Court Housing Projects. Did you have any sports heroes when you were a kid, Muggsy? Well, sports heroes... Uh, you know, I watched a little of the NBA at times and you know, watching Tiny Archibald and Calvin Murphy and those guys. Um, you know, I really didn't, couldn't really connect with them, but my hero basically was guys in my neighborhood. His, happened, his name happened to be Dwayne Woods. He just happened to be a small, diminutive point guard who was doing some wonderful things in our area. Um, and he was successful being that size and I always kind of looked up to him. Nice. Okay. There's a name out of a hat that uh, you folks can take and take to the bank. Now, addition, additional to, to hoops, Muggsy, you were a standout wrestler and baseball player, too. I love wrestling. Wrestling was definitely one of my passions. Of course, I played yeah. baseball, um, and I got an opportunity to play once. Uh, uh, I was with the Hornets, played a double-A, triple-A game with the Gastonia Rangers. But wrestling was something I was really passionate about. It just so happened to run in the same season as basketball, so I had to make a decision. Mm -hmm. And I'm quite sure I think I made the right decision. Yep, you did, Muggsy, that's for sure. And I'm going to talk to you about that little uh, exhibition game that you played with. Who was it, with Del Curry? With Del? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Del played, yep. Yep, that was the pitcher. Okay, we will talk about that in a little bit. Now, I want to ask you, how did you get the nickname Muggsy? Well, growing up as a kid in the inner city of Baltimore, uh, being small, um, the way I played the game, uh, still in the basketball, as they say, was mugging everybody. <laughs> and at the same time, we used to have a show come on every Saturday called the Bowery Boys. Right. And and one of the characters of that show was Muggsy, and, of course, he was one of the smallest of his uh, crew that he was hanging around with. And they kind of tied Muggsy character and the way I played the game. And I've been Muggsy ever since I was seven years old. Yeah, that's uh, Leo Gorsi was Muggsy in the, the old Bowery Boys movies. They're, they're a big favorite of mine, too, Muggsy. That's for sure. Absolutely. Now, now you, uh, you had scholarships also to... Uh, Virginia, Penn State, Seton Hall, but you chose to be a Demon Deacon. Why'd you, why did you choose to Wake Forest, Muggsy? Well, you know, during that time, uh, we was being sought after, I should say, you know, and people don't realize that when we was being recruited, they didn't, coaches didn't, the college coaches didn't go to our games, the recruiters. They mm -hmm. came to our practice, uh, mainly the recruiters, because we used to be teams pretty soundly. And uh, they just wanted to come and watch us play against one another to truly get a true assessment of what our skill set really was. Um, but Wake Forest, Virginia, Seton Hall, both were the top of my list uh, when I was trying to make that decision. Um, Seton Hall, I was really loving the opportunity possibly coming there uh, with Coach P.J. Calismo at the time. They had their star player was R.J. McLeod. Oh, yeah. And I was really interested in uh, possibly teaming up with R.J., 
But the ACC at that time was one of the toughest conferences that you could ever play in. And, of course, they had the likings of the Michael George still there at North Carolina. Kenny Smith had just joined the team. Lynn Bias, and, you know, I can go down the list in terms of the schools that the players that they had at those universities, the Georgia Tech, Mark Price, and John Sally. Um, so it was a very um, tough conference, and I think my making that decision, um, playing against the best, and I felt like if I had success against the best, I need to be included with the best. And having that mindset and put myself in that kind of, you know, limelight on that stage, allow the, the NBA scouts to, you know, get a better assessment of what I'm capable of doing against that type of talent. So right. that was something that I kind of, you know, wanted to make. And I wanted to make my mama proud, too, because she was something that she loved, the ACC, and she just easily turn on every Saturday and watch her son play. Great thoughts. Great thoughts for all, Muggsy, that you mentioned there. We're speaking with the great Muggsy Bogues tonight on Sports Talk New York. Now, Wake Forest uh, retired your number, and you, to this day, I believe you're still the all-time leaders in steals and assists for the Demon Deacons. Yeah, I still, I still hold that uh, hold that title. Uh, I hope somebody come along and uh and surpass it, but you know, guys ain't standing school long enough these days. No, to be yeah. able to, to, to surpass it, but uh, I still hold that title. I'm grateful for it. And you, you played international ball for for Team USA. I believe the coach was Lute Olson. And uh, how did you feel about representing your country in in the uh, World Championships? Ah, oh, what an unbelievable feeling! What an unbelievable feeling! Playing for the uh, coach Olson, and you know. Coach Bobby Crimson and those guys were assistant coach. Um, it was an honor uh, to represent your country as a collegiate player uh, playing against. At that time, those guys was considered pros, and um, and having that type of success, man, they would be the last team, the last collegiate team to absolutely win the gold medal. I mean, that was an unbelievable accomplishment and a wonderful time doing it. Even though it was some stressful times, that that I mean, it was stressful during that time. It was a little. Uh, war going on at the time, but under that type of adversity, we were still able to uh, persevere through it. And I'm so grateful to be part of that group because it was a special group, the David Robinson, Kenny Smith, and amongst the other guys that we played with us. Right. When you went into the NBA, Muggsy, in 87, uh, drafted by the Bullets, also in that class that, that uh, went into the NBA back then, of course, you mentioned the Admiral David Robinson, the great Reggie Miller, Scottie Pippen, and Kevin Johnson. All those guys went into the NBA with you. Oh, man, that, that draft year, 87, was loaded. I right. Mean, as, you, as you mentioned, the David Robinson went number one. and I mean, the late, may rest in peace, Armand Gillian with two, and Hobson with three, Reggie Williams with four. Uh, Reggie, Reggie wound up going 11. Uh, um, Reggie, uh, Miller, cause Reggie Williams went four. And then after that, I believe they took Scotty and traded him and flip-flopped him and horse, uh, uh, Olden Polonies. Um, so it was a, it was an amazing draft that year. A lot of guys, Kenny Smith was in that draft, as you mentioned. Uh, where else? Mark Jackson was in that draft. Uh, Doug McKee, we had a lot of guys came through that draft on 1987 that had some uh, longevity careers throughout their career, um, time in the NBA. Sure, there are definitely some great names mentioned there, Muggsy. That's that's for sure. Now, uh, you made your deb- debut against the Hawks at the old Omni 
uh, down in Atlanta. Do you remember that first game? Yes, we remember that with the Bullets. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely, yeah. With go Dominic, uh, Mike Fratello and the guys, Spurs was on that team along with John Battle. Doc Rivers was the starting point guard. Uh, yeah, they had a, they had a, uh, they had a crew that, that, that time. Of course, we had myself, Moses Malone, and Bernard King was on our squad, John, uh, John Williams, and, Dur- uh, Dur- Walker. Uh, we had a, a nice Kevin Lockery at the time was the coach. Kevin, yeah, we, we remember him, Muggsy, yeah. from being here with the, with the New York Nets, with, uh, oh, Dr. Kevin. J, Mr. K, Larry yeah. Keenan, uh, John Williamson, Brian Taylor from Princeton. Kevin was a great coach. Kevin, yeah, Kevin was a great one too. I tell you, he was special. Now you were a teammate of Manute Bowl. People that uh, that don't know Manute, <laughs> Google Manute Bowl, folks, because this guy was unbelievable. Seven foot seven, and people liked to photograph Muggsy. Next to Minute Bowl because it, it, it was the high and lower things, but I think you guys were on three magazine covers. Did you mind being photographed with Minute Muggsy? No, I, I adore Minute. And one thing about Minute now, we was really comfortable in that own skin, even okay. though at the time, uh, certain part of the during the season, the boats try to you use this more of a novelty act in terms of trying to showcase the different sides of us and gather try to get fans to come in but for us you know we was comfortable with who we were and what we brought to the table and, and that sort of stuff and we didn't we get caught up in it but he and i we had fun with one another we enjoyed being with each other um of course the ball the picture with the three balls was one of the famous <laughs> ones they had out there yeah and uh he and i especially <laughs> the biggest the main one of the stories we always tell is that when we first uh, team, as we was teammates, um, before private, for all teams got their private jets, uh, we had to fly commercial and we had to go through the airport. And they only had eight first class seats. And seniority was the one that allowed, they got the seats. Went by seniority and Newton, I was the two youngest. So of course we had to go in the back. And you can imagine his knees all up in his oh, chest. Oh wow. Yeah. <laughs> as we drive it. But we had fun doing that. He used to tell his stories about killing lines with the spears yeah. and all that. And, you know, I asked him what kind of lines with those lines with no teeth in their mouth. Was, <laughs> but we used to have fun with that. He was a, I miss him daily. Yeah, folks, Google Minute Bowl. What an interesting guy yeah. from he Africa. He got a son playing in the NBA. Bowl, bowl. Yeah, yeah. And uh, uh, a legacy right there. But but yeah. check out Minute, folks, and check out those pictures. They're, they're, they're quite good. Now, Muggsy Bogues is with us tonight on the program. You you were left unprotected by the bullets, and you were selected by the Charlotte Hornets. But I think that was a blessing in disguise for you, Muggsy. You, you teamed up with with Zoe Morning and and uh, the great LJ. Tell us about the the uh, Charlotte Hornets. Yeah, that was a, that was a, you. I guess the the ugly head of the NBA showed itself in terms of when the expansion came came, but I I should say that it was a blessing in disguise. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm thankful for the Bullets for selectively drafting me, being one of the few small or one of the only small guys I've ever been able to walk across the stage and shake the commissioner's hand and put a hat on and have that opportunity, have that experience. But then it didn't work out in Washington, which was my 
back in right in my backyard. But coming back to where I had so much success collegially, uh, playing in the North Carolinas, um, a, a startup franchise was mixed with with veterans and myself at the time. Me, Dell Curry, Rex Chapman was, you know, was playing then. Um, but you know, over the years, we was able to accumulate some really good players, like of the Kendall Gills, the Larry Johnson, Alonzo Mourney, and then you know that was the history of us where we start to put ourselves on a national level. I had opportunity to to beat Boston, to advance in the playoffs, um, first round, first time in the franchise history at the five years band in the lead. Uh, we just had some fun time with a lot of those players. We had Grandma Ma down there yeah. and Larry Johnson. Uh, playing in the dress was able to establish that type of uh, culture and tradition in, the, in that community. So uh, it was fun. It was a fun time in the 90s playing for the Hornets. Yeah, stay out of the lane, folks, when Granny's driving. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah, what, and then we had Dell Curry shooting them up. Yeah. They would say Stephen Curry's daddy, Dell. <laughs> yeah, and uh, we remember, of course, L.J. here with the Knicks, but his heyday was really with you guys in Charlotte, L.J. He 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 yeah. was uh, he he didn't have any back problems. He he was a, a whole player, and he was great. Yeah, he was more of a you know he came and gave you know he was a finesse player. He was more powerful down than with Charlotte at that that explosiveness. But he came and still became that all star player with the Knicks. You he know. did. Uh, versatile, outside shooter, very great player. I love that, Jay. That's my guy there. We were thankful that he came by and spent some time with us here here in New York. Now you were traded to the Knicks, Muggsy. Uh, I don't yeah. think you ever suited up, but you you were a Nick for a period. Yeah, I was. I was hurt during that time. Me and Mark Jackson had got traded from Toronto for Chris Charles, and uh, actually we there played uh, Toronto in that series. In the playoff that year, but I I couldn't get my health uh, in shape, and I had to sit out. And then after that year, we're doing that summer. That's when I retired when my mom got sick. I no longer wanted to play anymore. Muggsy Bogues with us tonight on the program. Now, the idea for your book, again, folks, the book is titled My Life from a Kid in the Projects to the Godfather of Small Ball, and uh, forwards by Steph Curry and Zoe Morning. Where did uh, you first get the idea for this book, Muggsy? Well, I did a book in 1994, 93, um, 93, 94, when my pops and my friend passed away, um, Reggie Lewis, the late Reggie Lewis, played for the Boston Celtics. Um, and then it used to call it was In the Land of Giants. Um, that it was the beginning of my career. Uh, it was more of an angry book. Uh, this one more of a... Um, a happier book has got yeah. so much in it. You know, it's more of a, I say, um, if a person had a passion, uh, just chased it each and every day. You know, it was someone that had that type of, uh, uh, work ethic and, and hunger that wanted to fulfill that dream that he was carrying around in his head. It's about relationships, some of the relationships I had, uh, on the impact that I had on some of the players that I played with. Uh, like the laws of money, the Larry Johnsons, and so forth, and um, the players uh, that had impacted the guys that did, that came up before us, like the Steph Curry. I mean, after us, you know, Stephen Curry and that sort of stuff. So it's about relationships, getting back to the community. Um, me and my wife, you know, we 
remarry after being divorced for 10 years, mm-hmm. which is kind of unheard of, of, you know, those situations. You know, I was kind of young. We was more of a boy when we first got uh, married. And um, I think going through so many, you know, changes and obstacles and learning from them and owning up to it, um, and we was able to rekindle our relationship back after having been in relationships and being divorced, but finding our way back, God is amazing, I should say. So it's a lot of things in that regard, and giving back to the community. You know, a lot of things that right. I have done, continue to give back, you know, with my foundation and so forth. So Great message it's a, in the it's book. It's a heartfelt folk. book, I should say. Right. As I, as I mentioned, uh, it's coming out Tuesday, some, some great messages for the kids in here. You talk a little bit about your battles with guys like Michael Jordan and, and Stockton. Tell us a little bit about playing uh, against Michael. Well, you know, Michael was more of the two guys, so I always got switched over to him every now and then. But it was just a competitive. You know, MJ brings the best out of everybody, no matter who, who, what position it is. And, of course, he loves to, you know, get switched over on me. <laughs> uh, that's the challenge that uh, he loved to, 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 to try to take on, and, and that's the challenge I love. To, to have on. Um, I think they had one famous one when they had us, when we was playing in the playoff. He was trying to back me in, and of course I wasn't having it. And uh, he was talking to this little smack. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but we was fortunate enough to, uh, to strip it, but they called their legal defense before it took place. Uh-huh. Uh, so, you know, those things always happen. And, you know, our encounters with one another is when we come into uh, contact with each other. His favorite thing is like to put his hands up to try to give me a high five, and I like to put my hands down low to make him come down and give me a low five. <laughs> so that's how we greet each other. Gotcha. Now, also something I remember, Muggsy, a spot you did with Larry David and Richard Lewis in Curb Your Enthusiasm. How did you enjoy that? Man, that was a fun opportunity for me. <laughs> uh, Larry David and Richard Lewis had me laughing the entire time on the set. And I told them they picked the right guy for that part. Uh, <laughs> we had a good time. Yeah. Uh, just ad-libbing it and uh, reacting it. Uh, I didn't really enjoy my opportunity doing that. Google that, that folks. Google uh, uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm with, with Muggsy Bogues. You'll see uh, the scene mm-hmm. we're talking about. Now, Space Jam, too. The, I, I know the kids love that movie. Tell us about filming Space Jam. We had a fun time doing Space Jam. You know, myself, Larry Johnson, Sean Bradley, Patrick, uh, Charles, and Michael. You know, we just enjoyed it. We had yeah. a fun time on the set. Um, I was hurt on the time. Um, but I was fortunate enough to be able to still, you know, read my lines, and they created a little opportunity where they was pulling me on the dolly because I had surgery on my knee. But it was fun. I mean, we had a on the set for three weeks. Um, we saved the we, we saved the planet. Yeah, we, we, we certainly we did. <laughs> now, Muggsy, there was always somebody probably through your life that told you, listen. Do something else, all right? Do yourself a favor. Do something else. What do you say to that guy now? Oh, my goodness. It wasn't just one guy. It was, <laughs> yeah. It was I mean, ain't nobody thought a guy my size where I was pursuing a game should even even attempt to throw it. They was more or less trying to uh, stir me towards wrestling. I felt like wrestling could be the way to uh, uh, give me an opportunity to go to school and get an education. Um, but, you know, basketball was just something that had a polar force uh, in me. 
and it was something that I was driven to do and I understood what God had given me and uh, and I understood the game and I understood my position and I think that's what's more than anything when the naysayers were saying that you can't and I always felt like well it's just the quizzes mind just need to know mm-hmm. that a guy decides they're capable of playing this game because they're just not used to saying somebody on my side you know was doing the things I was doing so Again, we're breaking that regard, and I just kept the confidence and the belief that, you know, I'm going to keep climbing the ladder. You sure did, Muggsy. Now, tell us a little bit about, in our closing minutes, uh, the foundation. Well, thank you for that. The Muggsy Bowe Family Foundation, I mean, is a dear to our hearts where we, you know, our mission is to help at-risk youth and families to try to live a better quality life, you know, by addressing mm-hmm. food insecurities access to a good education and job training. You know, by we uh, trying to allow these kids and, you know, families to, to, to take some of the stress and pressure off of them and allow them to reach their full potential. So we have uh, means of trying to continue to raise funds for those causes and try to give those resources for these trade-bounded students to, you know, be successful in life. Worthwhile, definitely, Muggsy. Folks, Google that as well, the Muggsy Bogues Family Foundation. Uh, certainly a wonderful organization. Well, Muggsy, it's been a real pleasure. I thank you for taking time out of your Sunday night to spend it with us up here in New York. The book again, folks, it hits the shelves this Tuesday, April 12th. It's titled, Muggsy, My Life from a Kid in the Projects to the Godfather of Small Ball. Again, it's from our friends at Triumph Books in Chicago. And that's Muggsy Bogues, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks, Muggsy. Thanks, Bill. Appreciate you having me, buddy. All the best. Thanks. Up next on Sports Talk New York, we'll talk with the great guitar player from the Doobie Brothers and Steely Dan, so much more, Jeff Skunk Baxter. So stick around, folks. to Sports Talk New York. Tune in every Sunday night at 8 p.m. on Long Island's WGBB. Broadcasting on 95.9 FM and 1240 AM. Or listen live online at WGBBradio.com. Stay connected to Sports Talk New York on WGBB by following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at WGBB Sports Talk. You're listening to Sports Talk New York on Long Island's WGBB. And now, back to the show. All right, folks, we are back. We're back with Sports Talk New York here in beautiful downtown Merrick, Long Island. Uh, we'll talk with the great guitar player from the Doobies and Steely Dan in a little bit. We're... we're uh, in full swing in the baseball season. I'm pretty happy about that. Uh, the Mets' home opener is on Friday. 
We look forward to that. Uh, the Tom Seaver statue will be unveiled on Saturday. Jackie Robinson Day, of course, opening day. And uh, right now, as we like to do on occasion, we're going to switch gears on Sports Talk New York. Our next guest, he's a guitar player extraordinaire, known for his stints in Steely Dan, the Doobie Brothers. More recently, he's worked as a defense consultant and chaired a congressional advisory board on missile defense. He was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as a member of the Doobie Brothers in 2020. Got a new album scheduled for release in June of this year entitled Speed of Heat. And the first single from that album is My Old School. Yes, that My Old School, folks. The one up in Annandale that uh, we talk about on occasion. He's got some gigs in the area coming up, I want to note right away, though. The, at the Iridium in New York City on May 6th and 7th, Jeff will be there. And at the Metropolitan up in Glen Cove, May 10th of 2022, he will be there as well. It's great to welcome to the show tonight Jeff Skunk Baxter. Skunk, good evening. Good evening to you, sir. Thank you very much for the kind words. It's wonderful to have you with us, Jeff. I, I've... Uh, Wanted to have you on for the longest time because I think you're a fascinating character. And uh, being called skunk, you, you keep that down on the down low, right? How you got to be uh, called skunk? Well, it'll be in my uh, it'll be in my book. But the good news is, because of my day job, everybody's got a call sign, so it works out well. Good, yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, when when is uh when can we look forward to the book, skunk? I'll probably beginning of next year. Okay. It's just there's and so much, you know, trying to get all this record stuff and touring and I don't know, it's just uh one thing at a time, right? Yeah, that's it. You got it. And uh I'm sure you're doing a great job with this. Now you studied journalism at Boston University. That's true. Yeah. That's true. And I was even thinking about being a DJ, like you know, so who knew? Yeah, exactly. Well, it's, it's uh, stranger things have happened, Jeff, that's for sure. Now, as a high school student, you worked at Manny's in Manhattan. Actually, I worked at Jimmy's. Oh, all right. Across the street. Now, Henry Goldrick mm-hmm. and Manny's, because I grew up in Mexico City and I was going to school in Connecticut, I didn't spend uh, a lot of my vacations. I stayed in New York. And Henry was really like a dad to me, like a, a mentor. He was the sort of guru. We became very close friends. Mm-hmm. Now, you ran into a guy by the name of Jimi Hendrix while you were working there. Uh, Jimmy James, yeah. yeah. He eventually became <laughs> Jimi Hendrix. And I uh, traded him a guitar for one, you know, even on one of his that was kind of beat up and used, got docked two weeks' pay, but. I uh, was very nice, good guy. We became friends, and he was a very special man. Yeah, he certainly was. That's that's right, Skunk. Now, you moved to to L.A. eventually. You found work as a session guitarist. Uh, tell us about becoming a founding member of Steely Dan. Well, I was doing a lot of work, session work, actually, in New York and Boston, mm-hmm. and I met a gentleman named Gary Katz who asked me, was producing a band called The Bead Game. Eventually, we brought the drummer in, uh, Jimmy Hodder, from The Bead Game into Steely Dan. The, uh, uh, he introduced me to a couple of songwriters, Walter Becker and Don Fagan, who were doing an album for a, a young lady named Linda Hoover in New York. 
So Gary asked me if I'd come down and do some sessions with them. I said, sure. And after a couple of sessions, I said, uh, you know, this music is amazing. And they said, well, we've never heard any guitar player play our music like this. So we sort of decided that if anybody could get a record deal, the first one got a record deal, call everybody else up. And Walter and Donald had gone to Los Angeles to get a publishing deal at ABC Records. And as soon as they got the publishing deal, sort of the, you know, the bat sign went up in the heavens and we all <laughs> moved to L.A. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, the rest is history, as they say. Now, you're on three of the of Steely Dan's albums, I believe, Can't Buy a Thrill, Countdown to Ecstasy, and Pretzel Logic. I remember having Can't Buy a Thrill from the Columbia Record and Tape Club when I ordered uh, 15 eight-track tapes for 99 cents, and of course, like everyone else, never paid for the rest of them. Um, th that was a special album. I really, lo I still love that album. Well, thank you, thank you very much. And uh, the the uh, signature solo on "Ricky Don't Lose That Number" is Jeff Skunk Baxter. What other solos can you tell us about from Steely Dan that that we would recognize? Well, probably in my old school, mm -hmm. you know, and that's uh, actually I did a rock version of that for this new solo project. I always thought the record had, or the song had a lot of rock potential. I used to sing it uh, when I was in Silly Dan live, and sort of every time we did it, it got a little, little more hardcore. And I don't know, it just seemed like it was the right song to uh, add a little, inject a little energy in. Mm -hmm. And so that's what that's what we did for the first time around. So I, and I, I'm not a, I don't think I'm a great singer, but I sent a copy of it to. Steve Tyler, because I wanted Steve to sing it, and he said, well, who's this guy singing? And I said, well, it, it's me. It's just a scratch poker. <laughs> I said, well, what's wrong with you? Why don't you sing it? Yeah. I went, well, I, I mean, you know more about this stuff than I do, so if you're telling me I should do it, I will take your word for it. No, it's 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 a great great version, that's for sure, Jeff. Um, well, thank you. It's um, People don't realize... Uh, in my old school, which is definitely one of my favorite Steely Dan tunes, they, they don't know about Little Bard College up on the Hudson River, and, <laughs> you know, and and how those guys and the the police and the the, the test tubes and the scale and all this, <laughs> all the other stories that come out of Bard College, people don't realize that. So I, I'd like to fill them in on it. We're speaking with Skunk Baxter tonight on the program. Now. Walter and Donald decided to retire from touring, and that's when you sort of left the band, right? Well, actually, I was playing in three bands at the same time. I was okay. playing uh, with Linda Ronstadt, playing in Steely Dan, and uh, was playing Steel with Linda, and then playing in Steely Dan and playing with the Doobie Brothers. And I was actually out on tour with the Doobies when uh, I got a call, and they decided that they just didn't want to do any more touring. So I hung up the phone and said, well, that's kind of it for me and Steely Dan. I just don't really want to do this. We're not going to go on the road. And they said, well, you're in, you're in the Doobie Brothers now. I went, okay. Yeah. All right. Great. <laughs> yeah. Well, and Roger that. Another favorite of mine, Jeff, is uh, South City Midnight Lady. Uh, the, the, the pedal steel on that, that's one of my favorite Doobie Brothers tunes from, oh, thank you. from the thank Captain you. and Me. And... Uh, a wonderful piece of work. 
and tell us how you got involved with the Doobies. Uh, the Steely Dan was opening for the Doobie Brothers on a number of uh, number of shows, and uh, after a few shows, uh, Pat Simmons uh, had said, "Well, what would you like to sit in, play a couple of songs with us?" I said, "Sure," you know, and I had yeah. playing too with anyone, so I thought they said, "Well." I'd be soft midnight ladies and so it started out as a couple of songs, then three, then five, <laughs> then half the set, and um, I, it just sort of morphed in from one to the other. So every time we would go out on tour, I'd play a whole set with Steely Dan and a good chunk of these. I guess that was that was my. Uh, um, indoctrination to the doobies so when they asked me i was kind of already up to speed i guess those guys are coming out with a book i think in may uh patrick simmons and and tom johnston uh called uh long train running i think uh oh, that's, good. that's due and uh, i'm looking forward to that now you were you were one uh one guy who got michael mcdonald involved with the doobie brothers I did. Uh, Tom Johnson was having some real severe health problems, and one day just couldn't get out there on stage. You know? And so I, it was at LSU, uh, uh, Louisiana State University, and mm-hmm. went out and said, hey, you can all have your money back or come back in 10 days and we'll have something for you. And so I called Michael and said, hey, you want to be in the Doobie Brothers? And he <laughs> said, yeah. I said, okay, well. <laughs> Sending you a one-way ticket, get your butt out here. And we rehearsed for 10 days, went out, got five encores, and I guess that kind of, you know, uh, set the stage. Cemented for, it, yeah. <laughs> That's for, right. Yeah, for, for volume two. Great, great story. Now, some of the And guys... also in the play drums were probably a third of the show as well, because mm-hmm. John wanted to play I got a chance to do all kinds of stuff. I had a great. Yeah, what what a great story! Now, some of the guys that you worked with that I want to ask you about. Uh, first, tell us about working with Linda Ronstadt. Hard to hard to say anything other than just an angelic voice, mm-hmm. a sweetheart, and the band was killer. Uh, some Richie Haywood on drums, John Boylan playing piano. We had a nuclear physicist playing, uh, pull string guitar and I was playing pedal steel. And it's just, the band was wonderful. And Linda, of course, what you say. And I, I love country music anyway. I love that style of music, uh, playing steel. And so we did a lot of shows with Linda and, uh, James Taylor going out together. We did, a I think we did um, a couple of the major rock shows. Uh, uh, trying to, it wasn't Midnight Special. It was one of the other ones, I think. But, or maybe Midnight Special. I don't know. I was in the house band for a while there. Mm-hmm. So I can't remember what bands I was playing with. <laughs> but um, uh, I, all I can say is one of the nicest, sweetest, and angelic people I've ever met. Nice to hear. Definitely nice to hear about one of my favorites. Now, how about touring with Elton John? Again, uh, uh, Elton had come to a Doobie Brothers concert when we were in uh, London 
to come and jam with the band. I mean, he's a, the guy's a, a musician first and foremost. Mm-hmm. And we had a really good time. We kind of became friends, and he had asked me if I would join his band. I said, well, I'm kind of between the production stuff and the doobies. I'm kind of done, but I will be uh performance with you of Captain Fantastic and the Brown Dirt Cowboy at Wembley Stadium because Elton wanted to perform the whole record. Mm-hmm. I said, sure, I'd be happy to do that. And he said, well, that's good enough for me. Um, and so I spent a bunch of time with him. And again, not only a great musician, but a really fine human being. You know, very, very special guy. Uh, um, reached out on a lot of different levels. I got nothing but wonderful things to say about him as well. Are you on the Captain Fantastic record, Jeff? No. No. No, no, no. Okay. They just, he wanted to perform that whole album in one shot. Right. And so he, they, or they booked Wembley Stadium to do it, and I flew over for rehearsals and flew over to do the show. And uh, th- that is one of my favorite albums. That's what I wanted to know. That. A great record. Yeah, it really is. Now, how about the, uh, touring with the All-Star Band with, with Ringo? I never went out with Ringo. Oh, but I okay. I did a bunch of records for him. I, I played mm-hmm. on a lot of his records as a studio guy. Uh, my my alter ego life, I guess, was being a studio rat. You know, I've been playing in the <laughs> studios for about 60 years now. And it was... Um, He'd ask to play on a few of sure. And Bill yeah. Ramona, you know, we'd do something with him. And they were going to like to play. I said, sure, you know, that's what I do. You know, uh, tell me where to be, give me the click, and let's go. You know. How about, uh, Jeff, the uh, great super band that I didn't know about, that I just read do, doing my research with John Entwistle, Joe Walsh, Keith Emerson, Simon Phillips, and Rick Livingstone, uh, a super group, folks, called The Best. Give us uh, some insight on that project, Jeff. Well, there's a club here at one time called the China Club. In There was a China Club in New York and a China right. Club in, in Los Angeles. And for a while, that was the house band. <laughs> And um, wow. <laughs> everybody wanted to come and play. I mean, Elton said, hey, I hear this band. I want to come and play the club. Come And that time in L.A. said, sure. Every artist that would come in, because I must say, it was a pretty, pretty killer rhythm section. Yeah. And one day, uh, Michael Jensen uh, from Jensen Communications said, why don't we just put this thing together and go to Japan and play some shows? And... We said, sure, what the heck? It'd be like fun. So we went in and rehearsed. All played four shows in Japan. Just one time, let's have some fun and have a good time. And uh, there's a bunch of uh, video. The guy who videoed the show stole all the tapes. Oh, boy. And they're starting to appear now on uh, YouTube. But... I'm proud of it. We had a great time, and it's some great playing. I mean, yeah. Wow. What can you say? I'm okay. going to look for that, Jeff. That's for sure. Now, uh, your second profession, we'll call it. You fell into that almost by accident with the Department of Defense. Yes, sir. Yeah. Now, you said that your unconventional approach to thinking about terrorism 
tied into your interest in technology, and that's why they wanted you on board. Yeah, well, there's a number of things. I was a officer with L.A. Also, I had a decent background in counterterrorism. Mm-hmm. And how to convert a Navy uh, uh, fleet defense system, uh, how to convert it to do missile defense. I mean, after all, a radar is just a you know, electric guitar on steroids. Once you got the <laughs> physics, then it's all the same. So I wrote this paper, gave it to a congressman. He called uh, the vice chairman of the Armed Services Committee, and he said, what is this guy with Boeing or Lockheed? He said, no, he's a guitar player for the Doobie Brothers. <laughs> so I get a call that asked me if I would be willing to put some time and effort into working with the Department of Defense. Next thing I know, you know, I'm sitting in a chair taking a polygraph, getting the clearances and working at Lawrence Livermore yeah. and working at the Pentagon. Oh, man. And uh, I had uh, I'd been uh, approached after that by a member of the community asking me if I would be willing to do some after the first attack on the World Trade Center. That was 1993. Mm-hmm. And they said, we are forming a law enforcement working group where you think Law enforcement and the intelligence community needs to communicate more. You, uh, we got plenty of spooks, but no cops. You have all the clearances. Would you be willing to serve? And I said, yes, sir. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember very well going into the Pentagon on 9-11, and that's kind of when I said, I think since this country has been so wonderful to me, I'm going to take a little time here and serve my country. Wonderful. We're speaking with the great Jeff Skunk Baxter tonight on the program. That is a, an amazing story, Jeff. I'm glad you related that. Now, you even considered a run for Congress at one point. I did. Um, it was kind of fun, actually. I didn't know I was running for Congress until my dad called me and said, Hey, what's this on the front page of the New York Times? You're running for Congress. I said, What? So, you know, I, I checked with a couple of my colleagues up on Capitol Hill, and they said, Yeah, we thought you might want to run for Congress. I said, well... Maybe next time, let me know, but okay, yeah. let's have a look at it. And it was a very interesting experience. Um, I found out very quickly that politics is a blood sport, and it was very uncomfortable, uh, the, the process. So after a while, and I'm not going to get into too much detail because I don't want to start getting parts of political Right. Uh, but it got so personal and it got so ugly that I thought, you know, nah, right. I'll just do what I'm doing for my country. And that's fine with me. And that was quite enough. That's certainly, certainly true, Jeff. Now, talking about the latest phase in your career with this new album, what brought you uh, to, to release this record? Well, I've been flying to oh, some years ago. <clears throat> I was spending a lot of time in Chicago doing jingles with a number of the jingle houses there. Mm-hmm. And during those sessions, I met a, a fine keyboard player, producer, composer named uh, C.J. Eston. Uh, he was on many of the dates. And uh, <laughs> one time we, I was sleeping on the couch at Universal Studios because, I mean, we were starting at 7 in the morning, so why go home? And I just cop some teeth. <laughs> get ready for downbeat, you know, 8 a.m. And so one of the jingle writers, so we'll remain nameless, a very talented guy, but he 
and it's pretty big. And uh, I guess he hadn't been to bed for about four days. And he said, okay, guys, let's, uh, I, I, uh, here's the music. And it said, he, <laughs> he distributed the music and it had the name Hyatt. So I assume that was for Hyatt Hotels. It had a time signature, key signature, and 64 bars. And that was it. And I looked at CJ and he looked at me and he said, well, are you guys ready? And we went, yeah, sure. What the hell? <laughs> Give us a click. Um, and we just made it up as we went. And afterwards, I really liked it. The client liked it. Everybody liked it. And I said to him, hey, I really uh, enjoy playing with someone who you don't have to talk to. That just sort of the music just flows. And after that, I said, if I ever do a solo record, I'd love to do it with you. So years later, we started working on it whenever we had time. And there are a couple of tracks on this record, uh, one track called Giselle and the other called uh, Juliet, that were just composed on the fly. Uh, we recorded it. So having someone that talented and that uh, um, attuned to be able to communicate musically um, that's where it all got started and then you know every, I just didn't want to do it immediately every everybody every guitar player from every famous band seems the first thing they do is to go do a solo album but I had so many commitments in the studio as a session musician and I was starting to produce records I was just doing it in pieces and then sometimes you know when the cake is ready to come out of the oven so here we are yep the rest is history again, as we say, Jeff. Now, what made you want to do uh, redo my old school? Um, I thought it would be fun to just do it. Um, originally, the whole album was going to be like instrumentals. I was going to have just some fun, you know, Apache and, mm -hmm. and you know, do some instrumental stuff. And then... Uh, I ran into Mike McDonald again, and I told him I was doing a solo record. Michael said, well, if you want me to do something, I'd love to. I said, oh, that's great. And then I uh, ran into Clint Black, and then Clint said, hey, Michael said you're doing a solo album. Well, I, I'd like to do something on it. Like, okay. And then Johnny Lang called me because he wanted to talk about uh, sort of an alternate career. And uh, I, would I help him with it? And I said, sure. He said, Ed, I hear you're doing a record, so I'd like to play on it too. So now... We have a bunch of singers, a bunch of writers, and the. I thought, okay, I'm going to take a shot at my old school because I'm familiar with the song. I know what it can do when you play it and you rock it. Mm -hmm. and I thought, you know what the heck, I'm going to I'm going to take a shot, and so that's kind of how it came about. And then the president of the record company said, "I love this song. It's going to be the first single." Went, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Nice. Well, uh, the show is coming up. I'm going to mention them again, Jeff. Uh, the Iridium in Manhattan, May 6th and 7th, 2022. Out here on the island, the, the, Metro the Metropolitan in Glen Cove, May 10th, 2022. What can people expect at the shows, Jeff? Well, we're going to do pretty much the whole record because... We love playing it. Mm -hmm. uh, we'll do a couple of other tunes, too. I mean, pe people seem to like, uh, they just love the song, Ricky, Don't Lose That Number. And I thought, okay, we'll do that. 
We'll uh, do an interesting version of China Grove because half the fun is kind of taking songs and arranging them to be a little bit more fun. Uh, some great players, wonderful drummer, Mark Damien, obviously C.J. Vanston on keyboards, a terrific bass player vocalist named Hank Horton from uh, the Detroit area. And we're just going to have a, a great time. I can hardly wait to play this. And I hope people enjoy it and they have, they have a good time. I'm really looking forward to Iridium because I used to play there all the time with Les Paul. So it's got a kind of a, a special place in my heart and they reached out right away. Nice folks. Mm-hmm. So all in all, it's, uh, <laughs> it looks, it, it looks good to me. Yeah, it certainly does, Jeff. Yeah. We are looking forward to the record, of course. Uh, the Speed of Heat, and the the gigs at the Iridium and up in Glen Cove. And I thank the hell out of uh, Mike and Ryan for uh, help setting up this interview. Like I said, I've, I've been uh, thinking about and wanting to have you on this program for a very long time, and uh, the dream is a reality now. I thank you for taking time out of your Sunday night out in uh, California there to spend it with us here in New York. Oh, the pleasure is mine, and Michael is family anyway. He's a very special guy, as you know. Nice man. And I really yeah. appreciate him putting this together for you all, for all of us. Mm-hmm. And thank you for the kind words, and uh, hopefully we'll see you at more shows. Definitely. You, you will, Jeff. And uh, once again, folks, the new album in June, Speed of Heat, the first single, The Great My Old School. Watch for that. And uh, the gigs in the area, we'll mention that again before we leave the air. Jeff, thanks so much for your time. And you can download, uh, you can download uh, my old school from, I guess, Spotify and Apple Music. Just look on Skunk, Skunk Factor, my old school, and should be there waiting. Outstanding. Thanks again, Jeff. Thank you, Bill. Thank you for your time. All the best. That's Skunk Baxter. That'll do it for me tonight on Sports Talk New York. I'd like to thank my guests. Muggsy Bogues, and of course the great Jeff Skunk Baxter, my engineer Brian Graves, and you guys for joining us. Really appreciate having you aboard tonight. See you next on April 24th. Don't know who I'm having uh, uh, on that night. I do, but I forget, all right? Give me a break. I wish you a good evening, folks. expressed in the previous program did not necessarily represent those of the staff, management, or owners of WGBB.